Welcome back to Christ is the Cure. Today we are going to be wrapping up the Christological section of our creed with two lines. We're going to be discussing and ascended into the heavens. He is seated at the right hand of the Father. And also the line, and coming again in glory to judge the living and the dead. His kingdom shall have no end. So we're going to be talking about those two lines and wrapping up the Christology. And then like I said, I want a week or two to figure out how I'm going to way through the passage on the Holy Spirit. I'm going to break it up and everything I'm going to cover. But that's what we're doing. I'm not really sure how long this episode is going to be in particular because um, the first section is a little bit short and our second section is a little bit long. But anyway, before we begin, I just want to say that I actually have the lineup of episodes for post through Nicaea done and planned. Well, not done, but planned. And some of them are prepped and some of them are recorded, uh, working through that. So that's our season three. And I think that it's going to be pretty diverse. I think it's going to be helpful on the ground. It's going to be interesting, hopefully. And then there's going to be a couple of mini-series in there. So I kind of changed I kind of changed what I was doing with Atonement. So that's that. We'll, we'll get there when we get there. But that's all set in stone now. And uh, as I start working through those and putting those out, patrons will have access to that, which... By the way, Christ the Cure is subscriber-supported, so please consider becoming a patron at patreon.com forward slash Christ is the Cure. Uh, you guys keep the show running, and right now, as of recording, we're at just about 50% of our financial goal for 2022 and 2023. So let's get into the first section. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. Now, historically, this clause, like the few clauses we have addressed in the last few episodes is relatively easy, again, in the sense of familiarity. Historically, the church would confess what is found in this line, and this line would be carried over from previous creeds. So one point of historical stress was that the son and his ascension did not gain a new dignity in being exalted, right? In fact, when we read the Christological passage of Philippians 2, and we see that after the resurrection, Jesus is exalted, we're like, well, how is he exalted in a different sense? Well, the church would argue that this was a revealing of this glory, but because he is bringing with him his assumed human nature, which is exalted for the first time, this makes it unique. So in terms of Jesus being seated at the right hand of the Father, we have to recognize that this is used metaphorically, and it's pulled from Psalm 110, uh, 1, and Daniel 7, 13. Uh, R.T. France summarizes this element really well, so we're just going to quote him. And this is from his, uh, the Gospel of Mark, a commentary on the Greek text. Uh, great series. Uh, but he says, both passages, in fact, express their distinctive ways, the same concept of a sovereign authority. This is obvious in the case of the psalm, sitting at the right hand of God. But if Daniel 7.13 is read in context, it conveys the same message and that the one who comes before God in the clouds of the heaven is immediately given dominion and glory and kingship, which are both universal and unending. Daniel 7, 13 through 14 is, in other words, no less than Psalm 110, 1, an enthronement oracle. 
and that it is a universal and unending dominion, which Jesus here declares that he himself will now receive. And so this seating at the right hand of the Father is his exaltation, his sitting down, his dominion, his kingship as Messiah. So as we already said, uh, biblical support for this line is quite straightforward. Uh, the ascension of Christ is predicted in John 20, 17. It's pointed to in Luke 24, uh, 51. Uh, Acts 1, 1 through 9 is when it occurs. Philippians 2, 9 through 11 speaks about it. Uh, so what we find is that within the Old Testament, Jesus' ascension was predicted in texts such as 1, 10, 1, right? The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand to make your enemies your footstool. And what we find in particular is that this is stressed in the book of Hebrews. You see this in Hebrews 1, 3, 1, 13, uh, 8, 1, 10, 12, 12, 2. The ascension of Christ acts as confirmation for the finished work of redemption alongside the kingship of Jesus over the universe. And Ephesians states that God has, quote, raised him from the dead and made him sit at the right hand and the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named. Peter also echoes this. He says that Jesus is at the right hand of the Father with all the angels, authorities, and powers subject to him in 1 Peter 3.22. Now, what we find whenever we read Psalm 110 is this, this rule and authority, the, the subjecting or the subduing of enemies, but the, also this idea of the high priest that... Jesus fills that role he fills um, of the order of Melchizedek, which is an interesting conversation in its own right. But in Hebrews 8, we find this stressed in particular. Jesus is our high priest who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty on high. The high priest would confess the sins of the people um, on their behalf. And Jesus became our great advocate and our great high priest. Quoting uh, Gareth Lee Cockerill in his epistles, uh, to the Hebrews of the New International Commentary of the New Testament. Also a great series if you want to pick those up. Uh, actually, I mentioned Doug Moo's volume in that series uh, and the Romans 7 article. Hopefully Douglas Moo doesn't mind me calling him Doug. Um, so anyway, he says, quote, Thus the high priest who has sat down at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven is not a reference limited to exaltation or session. And session would be ascension. Uh, it is a comprehensive description of the present reality available for all the faithful, the one who is seated in the place of all authority as the only effective high priest is the eternal son who achieved this position by offering his obedient incarnate life up in death as an effective sacrifice for the sins of humanity. The pastor's burden, that is the author of Hebrews, is for his hearers to realize that this is the high priest we have, and to appropriate his benefits. Thus, the pastor is guilty of no exaggeration when he says that this high priest is the main point of his message. So essentially, because of Christ's work, we have the ultimate means of not only uh, atonement, but intercession and confession and um, an advocate with the Father, right? So Kim, in his contribution... Uh, the Dictionary of Later New Testament Development says regarding Hebrews, instead the exaltation of Christ to the right hand of God is expounded almost exclusively in terms of his ministry as a high priest. Just as God's throne in the heavenly sanctuary is almost exclusively interpreted in its cultic significance, having entered into the Holy of Holies once and for all by his own blood, obtaining eternal redemption for us, and mediating the new covenant, 
Christ now serves in the heavenly sanctuary as the high priest interceding for us. So for the author of Hebrews, the exaltation to the right hand of the Father uh, has this highlight of Jesus as our high priest, while the phrase also has this connotation of Jesus as the king with unending dominion and authority. So Jesus not only rules, but he acts as our high priest and advocate before God. And we find this in texts such as 1 John. Quote, if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, 1 John uh, 2, 1. And Hebrews 7 says, Christ is the one who is able for all time to save those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them, and he is able to save to the uttermost. And that's 725. So here we have Jesus acting as our representative, uh, interceding for us before the Father, and he is our representation through whom we go to the Father through. Uh, so our application, what's our application? Well, last week we talked about um, how we have access to this throne of grace and how we should take advantage of that and meet with God. But not only do we have access to God, but we have this access to God with a great confidence because of who our intercessor is, our high priest, the one who advocates for us. We can come with confidence to the throne because we know that not only is Christ's work on the cross sufficient, but his work as a high priest is sufficient and can save to the uttermost. So we can spend a lot of time deeply reflecting on that. And part of that really shows up in a famous hymn we all know. Before the throne of God above, we have a strong and perfect plea. A great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives and pleads for me. My name is graven on his hands. My name is written on his heart. I know that while in heaven he stands, no tongue can bid me thence depart. We have a great high priest who has not only atoned for us, but is applying that atonement for us and confessing our sins, interceding for us before the Father, giving us fellowship and access to the throne and the Holy of Holies. And it's a beautiful truth, which, by the way, another quick application of this. If Jesus is acting as a high priest and he is interceding for us to the Father, then what we find is that Jesus and the Father are two distinct persons. This is contrary to modalism. So there, there's also a theological point that can be made here, is that this isn't just merely the divine human nature, which uh, modern neo-modalists kind of differ on how they articulate the ascension of Christ, whether or not he divests himself of his human nature, uh, etc. But the idea of the incarnation in oneness Pentecostalism is that it is the Father who adds to himself a human nature, and the Son is only the human nature. But here we're told that Jesus is an intercessor before the Father. Two distinct persons. And if you deny that, then all of a sudden your great high priest uh, and your advocacy before the Father is very confused. So that's that. So the applications really are, one, uh, a little bit of a theological application against modalism, but secondly and most importantly is that we have confident access to God because of who Christ is and what he has done on our behalf and what he is doing on our behalf as our intercessor and advocate. And 1 John 1, uh, chapter 1 through 2 really speaks to that. So our next section is, he will come to judge uh, he will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will have no end. Uh, so to summarize the historical aspects of this, uh, it, it's pretty easy, and we're going we're gonna to actually quote Mark Edwards 
uh, in Volume 3 of Ancient Christian Doctrine. He says, The return of Christ in judgment predicted in Mark 8.38 and 1 Thessalonians 4.16 is an article of previous creeds and inseparable from the preaching of the gospel. It is because Christ rose as the firstfruits of the elect that the believer is confident of his own resurrection, 1 Corinthians 15.12-20. This clause reminds the faithful that the resurrection and the exaltation of Christ are not remote historical facts or truths for Sundays, and because it implies that those whom Christ commends will be those who acknowledge him as Lord, it also tells us why the church thought it imperative to define the nature and origin of this lordship. From here, Edwards talks about how the words in glory were omitted in the Creed of 325 because people were, well, he, he postulates because perhaps it was feared that they would be taken to mean that Jesus would acquire this glory for the first time at the second coming. So another interesting bit is the line, and his kingdom will have no end. This line is actually one of the most significant additions to the Creed of 325. And the reason being was that there were um, a heretic who would say that on the basis of 1 Corinthians 15, 28, that when God is being all in all, he would cease to be a trinity. So basically it was this idea that Christ would give all all things to the Father, and so the Father would kind of absorb all things, and all and all would be, and thus there would no longer be a trinity. And so this line was added to make clear that the second person of the Trinity has existed from eternity, so he will continue to exist for all eternity after the end of the created order and willing submission to God the Father, but without surrendering either his own identity or the individuality of the saints. So that's a that's a very interesting um, heresy that was refuted by that line that we don't really see coming about today, but it's interesting. Now, the biblical support for this uh, is, again, fairly straightforward. Every now and then you would have a fringe group like Jehovah's Witnesses saying that Jesus has returned already, invisibly, uh, and, and stuff like that. But those really are easy to mark as, no, the, the text clearly says that all people will be aware of when Christ returns. Uh, so the biblical support, what I'm going to do is I'm going to focus on 1 Thessalonians 5, 1 through 11 in particular. So if you want to get out your Bible and pause and open it up, we're going to do kind of something similar to what we did with Mark. Um, and I believe it was the last episode. So the text reads, and this is the ESV. Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there's peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you are not in the darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith, love, and the helmet of hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up, just as you are doing. Great passage. There's really a lot of stuff we could talk about that. But the first things first is the explanation of the day of the Lord. The phrase, the day of the Lord is present throughout the Old Testament, uh, specifically in the prophets. But it denotes the day when Yahweh will intervene and bring justice to the disobedient and deliver the faithful. Um, 
really, it, it has this theme of judgment more than anything else. There's this stress of judgment and this call to repentance by the prophets. The day the Lord is coming, therefore repent because judgment is coming. And so what's interesting is that Paul takes this, he takes this judgment and he uses it as, yeah, the wicked will be judged, but you guys have hope. So it, this return is not only a type of warning for those who aren't in Christ, but also a comfort for those who are in Christ. Um, two particular texts that illustrate this are Isaiah uh, 13, 6 through 16, and Joel 2, 31 through 32. So Isaiah first even uses a metaphor similar to Paul's usage in 1 Thessalonians 5, 3. So it reads, Well, for the day of the Lord is near, as destruction from the Almighty it will come. Therefore, all hands will be feeble, and every human heart will melt. They will be dismayed, pangs and agony will seize them, they will be in anguish like a woman in labor, and they will look aghast at one another, and their faces will be aflame. So you can hear the the woman in labor parallel. Um, it is used a little bit differently, but there is a parallel there. In Joel 2, 31-32, we see this imagery of the sun being turned to darkness and the moon to blood, uh, quote, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. Uh, but Joel contrary to Isaiah's particular usage, takes a more positive angle in expressing the salvation for all of those who call on the name of the Lord, uh, saying that they will be saved in verse 32. So within, um, within the Old Testament, we find that there's really, this day of the Lord is described as a misery upon misery in Joel 1.15. It's a day that is bitter and harsh in Zephaniah one. 14. A fire which consumes those who are wicked will come in Malachi 3.19. It's a day that brings about wailing, Isaiah 36.6, and so on. So the prophets focus on calling the people back to obedience that made the judgment more emphatic over and against the deliverance. Um, here, Paul is pointing to both in, in a pretty fair balance, I think. But ultimately, whenever we examine the data from the Old Testament and the New Testament text, we find that the day of the Lord should be bringing to mind this idea of a great judgment of God, which is characterized more by God's justice and punishment of the wicked uh, within the overall narrative of Revelation, right? Uh, this is consistent with what we read in 1 Thessalonians 5. Um, I mean, he describes it as sudden destruction, labor pains, they will not escape. Additionally, Paul contrasts this with the state of those who are in Christ. Uh, those who are in Christ escape God's wrath, which is articulated in the image of the prophets as well, right? Uh, while 5, 1 through 11 encompasses more of an Old Testament emphasis on judgment of those who are in darkness, Paul's understanding is also positive in that it, he contrasts this with the assurance that those in Christ have. God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. So how about we look at the theology of the passage broadly, and then we'll look at the relevance for today. So like we said, the theology that is prominent is surrounding this idea of the day of the Lord, which occurs at Christ's return, and how those in Christ should conduct themselves until this event. So the day of the Lord's background is grounded in the Old Testament, like we just said, and so it brings to mind this idea of the terminus or telos, the end of the narrative of redemption and the return of Jesus, and the final establishment of the kingdom of the new heaven and new earth. So the day of the Lord is the time for final judgment and the destruction of the wicked and ultimate deliverance of God's people is the focal point that Paul uh, discusses. And he says, this is how Christians should view Jesus' return and conduct themselves prior to this return. So the Christians within Thessalonica, 
or Thessaloniki, I've heard it said so many different ways, believe it or not, are instructed on the basis of their presupposed knowledge in 5.1, their knowledge of this day of the Lord, to continue living within this reality, right? Basically, he's saying, don't become lazy, which really is consistent with what we read sometimes in the Gospels. So Paul contrasts the Christians with those who are in the darkness, and even those who are asleep, interpreted as a lacking necessary alertness more so than literal sleep, right? Uh, and he tells them to be awake and prepared for the obtaining of salvation through Jesus at his second coming. There is something to be said about the parallels with this text and 1 Thessalonians 4.13-18, through 18, so I suggest you go read that. Um, but ultimately, up to this point within the epistle, there has been several allusions to the return of Christ. You see this in 1.3, 1.10, 2.12, 3.13, 4.13-18, 5.1-3.14, 5, 1 through 11 acts as the significant motivator or reminder for the Thessalonians to carry on in the midst of Paul's various exhortations that occur throughout this epistle. So Paul has encouraged the believers to carry on in their obedience and faith and to grow in love. And at this juncture, Paul pushes them to be alert in juxtaposition to those who are spiritually lazy and those who live in the darkness. So with this in mind, Paul appears to all spheres of time in order to encourage the Thessalonians to continue in holiness and mission by appealing to the work of Christ within their own lives initially, and you see that in chapter 2, 13 through 16, by appealing to their progress already in 3, 6 through 13, and by appealing to the return of Christ in 5, 1 through 11. So here Paul is, is shepherding these people by saying, look, you have this work of Christ that occurred in the beginning. You have been progressing in this work. Now keep going because Christ is coming back. Now what's interesting is that Paul and Christ are pretty hand in hand here because Paul uses times and seasons, thief, awake, um, and this not knowing aspect related to being vigilant. And we see this in Christ's um, end time parables, his eschatological parables. Uh, remain diligent, remain awake, uh, be careful for the thief, look out for times and seasons, right? So this all shows a great consistency with the words and teachings of Jesus. And systematically, we can place this text within the discussion of eschatology, right? The end times. And what we can know for certain about the eschatology from this particular text is that the judgment from the Lord will come suddenly, unexpectedly, and irreversibly. It will come. As Theodore of Sire expresses, I believe he is a um, third century writer? I forgot. Um, he says, the woman who is pregnant knows that she has a fetus in her womb, but does not know when the birth will occur. So it is with us, as we know that the Lord will come, but we do not teach the time itself with certainty. Additionally, we can consider uh, the doctrine of salvation, namely the obtaining of the salvation of the believer, uh, which is linked to this idea of glorification, right? There's this, there's this idea that we have been saved, we are being saved, and we will be saved. So this is ultimately the, the obtaining of that new body and that glorification and that finality of the work of God. Uh, and we find that God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation. And so believers can take comfort even in the midst of the sudden and righteous judgment of God against the wicked. Additionally, what's interesting is that the Roman Empire's motto was peace and security. And so Paul takes this stab at all the people within the empire. They promise you peace and security, but while you think there's peace and security, sudden destruction will come upon you. This is an illusion. 
and it will be revealed as such by this sudden destruction. Um, and so you can see uh, there, there's really a lot of things that you can glean from this passage, to be honest. So uh, the relevance of this passage then was that within the first century church, there were trials coming from various angles, right? Uh, you're talking about religious, political, economically, and these hardships could lead to the church um, to feeling abandoned and asking, where is the justice? Where is Christ, right? So additionally, the society was heavily pagan, and those influences of, quote-unquote, those in the darkness could be tempting for Christians to slip into those activities of sleeping and drunkenness. To this, Paul reminds them that Jesus is coming at any time and that there will be justice. And so they just need to remain diligent and alert and aware of this carrying on in the midst of these circumstances and equipping themselves with the armor of God, which this is the other instance where the armor of God is alluded to um, alongside Ephesians 6. But there's also some countercultural features here. And the first can be centered upon the polytheistic Greco-Roman world. Uh, wherein deities would often be understood primarily connected to particular cities or landmarks or formation, right? They were kind of, they, they had their own like districts, if you would, and they were predominantly bound to the material world. And so you have this, this picture of where all these people who believe in this, these gods who are bound to materialism will have to face a God who is the creator of all material. And there's no escape. There's no, there's no place for them to get away. This is not bound to a particular city, landmark, location, and it's not just going to be a natural disaster. It's going to be executed upon every single one who is not in Christ. So what is our application? Our applications are pretty similar. We, in truth, we live in a polytheistic society of sorts, where the material world is predominantly the only constant. And all that goes beyond the material is considered relative to one's quote-unquote truth. Additionally, the culture, both church culture and secular, are emphatic on the love of God at the expense of God's judgment, which effectively removes the promise of justice from this passage. Likewise, uh, the society of being in darkness and drunkenness is this type of hedonism, right? Uh, this, this indulge in the flesh. And we see this throughout our culture. And it just keeps being pushed and pushed. There's this need for relativism and hedonism, um, especially within the younger generations as they grasp for some meaning in this world. So what's the differences? Well, in terms of differences, we actually have less spiritual awareness in our time, in our culture, than the culture of Paul's day. Um, their emphasis is on the material so much so that there's no spiritual link to the spiritual and material. So it almost becomes more difficult for them to envision a reality of the eternal supernatural realities of darkness and light in a way that would be understood in this original context. So within the passages call for Christians, we are called to be alert and prepared and await the inevitable judgment of the wicked in the coming of Christ. We find this call to be sober-minded, to be the light, and this can be applied to every area of our lives, but consistent faithfulness, sober-mindedness with this hard truth of judgment that will come and is necessary, especially when wickedness seems to, pre to prevail and be prevalent today. There's this lack of justice. So in the same way that Paul uses this as a comfort for the Christians, where are you, Lord? We can have this hopeful expectation that judgment will be executed. That's how we know that God is love. 
God's love demands punishment of the wicked. Otherwise, he doesn't actually love. Justice is loving. So our first application point here is really in the midst of this polytheistic society, in the midst of all these great evils, in the midst of all this, what feels like hopelessness, we can take these applications and directly put them on ourselves. Have hope. Be diligent. Be the light. Don't get lazy. Don't succumb. Be sober-minded. Stand firm, waiting to obtain your salvation. Mortify the flesh. Abide in Christ. Await for the day of the Lord. Know that justice will come. And it's hard because we look, even from 381 to now, hundreds of years of no second coming. We have to realize that that's also a grace where God is offering up the gospel and he's using us as instruments to do so. He's still saving sinners. Good is still being done. God is being loving and merciful, and all those who have died in their sins will be appropriately punished to the proper degree. This is hard sometimes, sitting here thinking, when will it occur? But ultimately, no matter when Jesus' coming will come, we are called to be faithful, diligent, and sober-minded. If hundreds upon hundreds upon hundreds of Christians before us can be diligent and faithful and waiting for the second coming, we can too. Whether or not that second coming comes in our lifetime or not, we should treat it as if it's imminent, which means that there are people out there who need to be awakened, who need the gospel, and that we are still needing to be faithful and patient and hopeful and abide in our Lord and have fellowship with one another. God bless you all. Have a wonderful, wonderful week. Greatly suffered, died.